You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. I've, I've always been interested in the process of writing a book. And when I read yours, I was really amazed, like, and, and a lot of good authors, of like, you're using words to paint like these pictures of the sounds, the sights, the smells that are kind of like, you know, so you, so the reader can visualize, you know, the activity that was, that's going on and, and it's in such detail. And, and I know there was a tremendous amount of like research and interviews and various trips and stuff to, to pull this book together. And, and I'm curious, how do you document like, like all of that stuff to, to go back later um, and, and, and bring that into the story. And the one, the one, for whatever reason, sticks out in my mind is in the chapter where you were with, was her name McDonald? Yeah, and, and she photographs the old abandoned homes. And you talked about when you got to the first, you opened and then you closed the door of the car and it catches all the grass, the tall grass that you're parked in, in the door. And I'm like, oh my God. And it's like, one, I've done that. And I'm like, how do you, like, do you get out as an author and go, oh, oh just a minute, I got to write this grass caught indoor, remember, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I, it would take you forever. Yeah, I... I look back on it now and I'm not quite sure how I did it, although I'm working on my next book. So, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to carry over some of what I did at that time, but I think in the field, I'm just trying to document as much as I can while at the same time being in the moment. So mm -hmm. I will run my tape recorder and I have like, you know, I mean, I know now some people use their phone. I'm using my phone to take photographs. I have a camera. I just let my, tape recorder go and you know periodically I'll check and make sure that pictures are being snapped and recording is still underway but I, I mostly just try to be in the moment and when I return from a trip like that I give myself some quiet time to just journal to just write it down okay and I may or may not consult all of that but I usually consult some of it in the moment when I'm coming back to refine. And I, I learned a tip from a Canadian author, Ken McGugan, who was a mentor to me in writing this book. He's written a lot about the Canadian Arctic and exploration. And he had said, you know, you can think about your research in three different ways. You've got your, your people, your places and your paper. And, you know, with the book, I really started with, I had my own personal history and so I had the people in my own life, but I, I really started that process of writing by digging into the paper. There had been so much written about the Cod Moratorium, but delving back into that made me realize there was very little written from a female perspective. There was very mm. little written from someone from my generation who hadn't directly fished, but still felt impacted by that, that period. And, you know, spending a lot of time just reading that or watching or looking at photos of, of that which already existed and then talking to people and going to the places. And, you know, that helped me to make this manageable. And, um, you know, I look back on it and I think if, I'd, if I wrote that book now, it would be a different book. 
because mm. I've learned so much since putting that on paper and tell people, you know, if you liked some of what you read there, then follow my reporting because I'm still reporting on this and I'm still learning. And I'm much more comfortable with fishery science now than when I started writing that book. But, you know, it was the book that I needed to write then for a whole bunch of reasons. I think, you know, for the reasons I mentioned about where I thought there was a gap in the voices about who had been telling this story and who also hadn't yet told this story. And I think there's still a lot of voices, Indigenous voices in, in particular. We've not heard Indigenous voices on the Cod Moratorium. And, you know, Newfoundland Labrador's Indigenous communities have most definitely been impacted. Um, but I, I also, you know, I just had, I had to write the book that I, that I needed to write. That was the book I needed to write then. And um, it's funny because I, I've talked to people who said, what, what, what more could you possibly say about this? But, you know, this is one of the greatest, if not the greatest collective traumas in the history of Newfoundland Labrador. And it's also something that I think many people think is something that happened there that couldn't possibly happen elsewhere. And now, unfortunately, you know, I can point to Pacific salmon as an example. Mm -hmm. And I don't think mm -hmm. we're even relegated to just looking at fisheries. I think we can look at, you know, other species at risk, but we can also look to other industries. You know, this is manufacturing in Ontario. Um, just as an example, this is oil and gas in Alberta. It's, it's, a, it's a whole number, depending on how you're going to look at it it's, it, it's relative to a number of ongoing issues today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you know, and I think that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm drawn to this story. Uh, you know, from a conservation perspective, it's, yeah. it, 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 it is, it is relevant, and it, and it, and it does fit into, like the themes of so many stories that are unfolding. And and uh, on on another podcast that I do, the Round Canada podcast, I'm always doing like little news stories from across the country and sort of conservation related things and and when you do that enough you start to go you know i've been been covering you know like canada geese issues or coyotes biting people in stanley park or or fisheries closures fishery reductions recreational fisher close and and it's like they just keep coming up and you see these threads you know from month to month year to year one side of the country to the other and and um and yeah, I definitely saw a tremendous amount of those other stories uh, in yeah. your book as well. <laughs> Unfortunately, caribou, um, you know, like it's just, yeah. um, but, but I, mean, I it's I've, interesting though, cause it's, it's true. I mean, I think first when people read it and they also, the title is cod collapse. Um, and I met many people who were like, but what's the positive side? And I'm like, well, this is like the greatest numerical reduction of species <laughs> in Canadian history. So this is, this is unfortunate. <laughs> But I will say, I also, you know, did come across stories of resilience and, mm. you know, redefining. And so there's, there's, I think, lessons to be learned in that as well. And I'm sure we'll get into it. We've also, you know, there's probably no more data rich species than, than northern cod in particular, a, a population of um, the species Atlantic cod. So there's still lots of lessons to be learned from this and, and not all of them are dismal. I mean, I still see mm. one of the reasons why I'm interested in this is, you know, I think the job as a reporter and a, a journalist is to help make that, which is interesting and important, a pleasure for people to learn about. And that's what I'm really in pursuit of. I'm really in pursuit of seeing this 
have its rightful place in Canadian history and global history so that we can, you know, learn that history and stop repeating it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, we're, we're going to get into a bunch of those topics and, and, yeah. and dive into those rabbit holes. And so I'm really, really excited to, that they were already like, we're already tripping on them. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like just raring to get at it. So let's, uh, let's jump in. Hey, everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis All, all the co-host. <clears throat> we are excited to announce that Alpine Toyota has re-upped for another year as our title sponsor, which we are super excited about. So huge thank you to the folks down at Alpine Toyota, as we always say, continuing to support us. And now they've proven it and shown it that they are continuing to support us for the next year. So we are very excited that they are still going to be present and part of the team that uh, helps bring our listeners all this cool dialogue that we have on this podcast so write them in and say thanks for keeping the folks at the hunter conservationist rolling with your sponsorship so again thanks to alpine toyota and we look forward to talking about more truck trims that are custom and all sorts of <laughs> funny stuff that we usually uh, we usually talk about but yeah today is a big thank you to alpine for re-upping Thanks, Alpine. Absolutely. You know, I was um, talking to Alpine's uh, owner, Principal uh, Bruce, and he's been in the interior fishing rainbow trout and stuff. And so I said, hey, September's um, going to be two episodes that are near and dear, uh, fisheries related. Um, so we have this one on the, the cod moratorium, the cod collapse. And then later this month, it's the interior the interior Fraser River steelhead issue. Um, so yeah, September is a fishing month. So um, yes. hopefully Bruce Bruce will like that. I just, I got to get some pictures of it. the rainbows that he's catching. Mm-hmm. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, absolutely. So we have Jen Thornhill Verma, um, author of the book Cod Collapse. The Rise and Fall of Newfoundland's Saltwater Cowboys. I like that. So, but here's my version. Oh, wow. That's even more so than mine. I uh, like it. So I'm just showing her, I'm just showing her my copy of the book and it's got all the little, um, the little stick it tabs, you know, whenever I see, oh, I want to, I want to flag that. I don't like writing in books. My wife reads them and she highlights them and writes. I'm like, no, because if someone else <laughs> reads it, then you've messed with their thought process. So I always have the removable, <laughs> removable sticky things on it. And uh, yeah, yeah I, I got a few of those pulled out to, to uh, um, bring into the show here. Um, great, great book. Um, your, your family heritage is Newfoundland, Labrador, cod fishery. Okay family um the book really speaks to the heart from that um and i think that's one of the things that makes it makes it so great you know the book is just an absolutely beautiful blend of canadian history which i love um natural history 
you know, which, mm-hmm. you know, resonates with me as well. Uh, East Coast culture, um, science and politics of fisheries management is in there. Family, place, the sense of belonging, loss, and hope. These were just all these threads that, you know, are all, all through the book. And, you know, they'd go away and then they would come back at the end of a chapter and stuff. But it just, it had so much, I think, um, really encourage people to, you know, pick it up from your local indie bookstore. And, um, and, and you'll, you'll find something. You'll find a piece of your own family in there. You'll find a piece of your own loss. You'll find um, some inspiration for hope for, you know, things that you really care. And, and, uh, yeah, so that, that's, those are some things that really resonated with me. Uh, loved, loved the book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So one of the, of <laughs> one of the little flags that was, that, that I have in there that I kind of wanted to kick off this conversation. And mm-hmm. I, th- I think you kind of alluded to it, uh, already, um, was a really powerful one for me. And it's, um, it says Northern Cod is, at once, one of the most devastating cases of the depletion of a marine species in our lifetime. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just, it wasn't until I read this book where I didn't truly understand how, yeah. like, big this w- was, you know. Um, and, and your book really speaks to the human impact of that as well, which, which I appreciated, so... Well, and Jeff Hutchings, it's, this is not in the book, but I learned it. He's the late fisheries biologist and, you know, really was an expert on this topic. He was, he was coming in, you know, finishing his PhD at the time that all this happened and really knows the whole sordid history. But he quantified for me after the scale. And he says that between the 1960s and 1990s, Northern cod in particular, so this is one population of the species of Atlantic cod, but we know that all Atlantic cod are critically depleted, but they had a 90% decline. 90% of the cod population was already gone before the moratorium. And, you know, he quantifies that into 1.5 to 2.5 billion with a B breeding individuals. And this is provocative, but he wrote in his book that came out, he he passed away in January, his book came out in December, and it's meant for other scientists, but I read it cover to cover, and I wrote a review about it, and I would recommend it to anyone who, like you, is interested in conservation issues, because it really speaks to the science behind it, and I think it equips you with a good understanding of, of the science. But he says, by weight, that loss is roughly equivalent to 27 million humans. I know that's a leap for people. Mm-hmm, but I mm-hmm. think that it helps to relay the scale. It, 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 because, you know, when you hear about metric tons, it's really difficult to make sense of those figures. But the fact that, you know, he put them in billions of individuals and equated it to the weight of humans, it, it begins to unravel what we're talking about here in terms of the overfishing that went on. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so I knew enough to know okay, there's, this, is, this is, you know, the greatest example numerically of a reduction in Canadian history. I didn't quite understand that. And I'm very grateful to him as a scientist who, you know, who was so dedicated to science, but also to communicating it, that that now mm. lives on in, in his book. Um, I'll grab the title of it because I think people may be interested in, in knowing it. But 
he was such a fantastic communicator, truly. Um, that that figure, you know, twenty seven billion people, um, would is it would million million or million. Sorry, would would translate um, into an infographic like like really well a, a lot of scientists are using those things now to say like mm -hmm. you know there's this and then this is the size comparison um something like that would be would would be pretty cool to give people a visualization of the volume of living species that were were depleted exactly this is the book a, a primer, primer of, of life, life histories. histories oh wow okay mm. beautifully illustrated um and it has you know figures and graphics and details and it really talks about the you know the early days of of conservation biology which in many ways was you know informed by a fisheries conservation biology informed by the cod moratorium and the cod collapse so hmm. yeah i found it particularly you know cathartic as a read to, to think that there are people like him unfortunately he's no longer able to work on this he passed away much too young but i know that he left behind a legacy of PhD students and postdocs who continue mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to pursue Carry this, that so. on. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'll definitely have to have to look that one up for sure. Um, so let's, let's kind of start at, I guess, maybe the big picture uh, and the history. And, and, and I think this is, I hopefully you agree, like to actually paint the picture of the grand banks themselves. Um, yeah. You know, I've heard that growing up, you know, my whole life, um, we're West Coast, this is East Coast, and, you know, the Grand Banks. And so tell us, like, you know, ex I know it's massive. Um, yeah. Paint us the picture of the Grand Banks and why that was important to creating such a massive population of cod. Yeah, I mean, this this area of the Grand Banks is, you know, three times the size of, of Newfoundland. It was once the richest, largest, most important cod fishing grounds on the planet. And it just has this very unique ecosystem with the, the shelf. It has the cold Labrador current. It, you know, it has the a, a, a warming water that comes through there. It's just this, you know, idyllic place for ground fish. And so it was a place that attracted the entire planet. And I, you know, I know a lot of people reference John Cabot's point about, you know, there were so many cod that you could walk across their backs. But I had found a quote from Duke that was writing about Cabot's expedition, um, you know, five centuries ago. And in that letter, he writes, they affirm, speaking of Cabot and his crew, they affirm that the sea is covered with fish, which are caught not merely with nets, but with baskets, a stone being attached to make the basket sink in the water. And said Englishman, uh, his companions say that they will fetch so many fish that this kingdom will have no more need of Iceland, from which country there comes a very great store of fish, which are called stockfish. And of course, they were referring to, to codfish. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting because Cabot was looking for riches of the Orient and, and found riches that would feed a hungry kingdom at the time. And it's it's not the beginning of the story. You know, he names it Newfoundland. We know it's neither new nor found. There were many uh, people that walked this terrain long before Cabot did, most certainly indigenous people. But I think it, it speaks to, you know, what riches lay beyond the shores of Newfoundland and Labrador. And, 
it attracted European fishing fleets from England and Ireland and France and Spain and Portugal to the Grand Banks for, you know, a century or more. But I mean, people fished and sustainably so for the better part of 500 years from the, from the 1400s. And to think that it was really just in the 1960s that we, we saw the first decline of northern cod. The fact that they're still around is what gives me hope. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, it's like, I know there's mm-hmm. many mascots out there for sports teams and there has to, somebody needs to adopt the Atlantic cod as, <laughs> as its mascot, because I don't know that any, <laughs> any species has quite the, the fighting capacity, but um, yeah, I mean, people settled these shores and the, the way I put it is the presence and also now more recently, the absence of cod has informed every aspect of Newfoundland and Labrador's existence, you know, where people settled the architecture, the art, the cuisine, the culture, the traditions, even today, you know, 30 years after a moratorium, there has and continues to be a small commercial fishery since 2016. But, you know, the heyday of, of that fishery is long gone. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Is the the actual, like the actual Grand Banks themselves, the, the, the fishing grounds, is that is like that is shelf like because I'm envisioning something that's yes. not super deep ocean. They might be right. hundreds of miles offshore, but they're still on yes. this gigantic shelf before it drops off uh, into the exactly. ocean. And so, hmm. the the bottom fish are not going to be like kilometers down in the ocean. Is that that's okay? That's exactly it. But then because it has this like cold water from the Labrador Current, it, mm. it just creates these optimal conditions for for ground fish like cod like capelin um and you know i think i think that was also part of there's this unique geography in the ocean landscape off of newfoundland and labrador and, and people also talk about the um exclusive economic zone that was put in place in the late 1970s which people say you know happened too late in the canadian context and that it also didn't extend far enough to protect um, you know, the full range of what the, the fishing grounds were. So the, the zone would put limitations within the zone would be fishing in Canadian context and beyond would be foreign fishing. And if that had come into effect earlier, maybe there had been greater parameters and that also that the zone had extended beyond the, the 200 mile limit, that, that that could have made a difference had it, had it come into effect sooner. But I, I think it seems like at the time there wasn't Although many appreciated the unique geography of this this ocean ecosystem, that it wasn't appropriately, I think, protected in in that zoning. Um, right. And now, I mean, I've, I've said, you know, people can envision the Google map. You put yourself in the Google map. You can zoom down to Street View. If you had a Google map today, you know, the Grand Banks, there's still a great deal of fishing that goes on in that particular area, but there's also major oil and gas development, right? Um, there's major marine traffic. There's, you know, to see the Google map. And I think, I think that would actually be really educational. I don't know if it's an art project, if it's a journalism project, but, you know, something that brings close to home the extensive activity that today occurs in this area and surely impacts the ability of, of cod and, and other species to, to replenish themselves. It, it has to. Um, and yet, you know, you have all these jurisdictional issues and departmental issues that, 
don't allow that to happen. I mean, fisheries are managed based on single species, even though we know that they interact with other species and in their ecosystem, there's a great deal of science now in ecosystem-based management, but that's not how most fisheries are managed, not just in Canada, but, but globally, right. right? So there's a leap right. there yeah. in terms of what we know and what we can actually do. But um, it's, it's a very different setting, I imagine, than when my grandfather would have first fished, you know, dory fishing off of a schooner in the Grand Banks fishery. Those, those days are, it's quite different today, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> with all the, with all the uh, technology and satellite stuff of the big, the big processing ships out there and stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, just the sort of the idea of the schooner it's on the canadian dime right like it's just sort of it's just so so canadian and and um it, it, it was interesting like in your book too like that whole thing of the schooners and the dory fishing and stuff like that was replaced by like modern technology and kind of steel yeah. ships quite a long time ago like like i i was sort of surprised like i mean i guess if you kind of match that up to you know, World War One, and and yes. you know the ships and the Industrial Revolution and stuff. It's like, yeah, technology hit the oceans like a a lot farther back than. So Absolutely, that was I mean, hard I, on fish. I have learned, <laughs> I, and I didn't. I mean, these are things. It's true. I I, I hadn't appreciated. I knew the scale. Uh, I understood. I think because I was twelve at the time when the moratorium happened, and I felt. I felt the devastation. I didn't know the details, of course, but I, you know, I saw communities shuttered and I, I, the same, you know, the, the, just those days were gone of, of, of what you once encountered. I mean, now today wharves in, in Newfoundland Labrador, many of them are no longer community settings. They're very industrial. Like I always point to Bay Bulls, which is just outside of, um, St. John's on the Avalon Peninsula and it's a reference point that's helpful for Canadians because when John Crosby the day before the moratorium uh, is in Newfoundland Labrador he goes down to Bables and he's encountered by the you know throngs of fishers and plant workers men women and children and I when I went back there uh, to research for the book I wanted to kind of travel the same path that John Crosby would have taken it's very difficult to do that you know there's very, first of all, there's very little fishing that goes on. There's some that happens from bait bowls, but what once was a community fishing wharf and what once were plants are now service stations for oil and gas, for Hibernia, for example, and other, other oil rigs. And many of the fishing families have now transitioned to tourist operations. Mm. And, you know, so to, to be able to try to, it's just not a place that is welcoming where you could go and learn from your family and friends about, you know, gutting a fish or cutting out cod tongues, or it's it's very much an industrialized place that is that is unwelcoming, and and that's not true of all Newfoundland Labrador communities, but but there has been this massive transition, not just in the offshore and in in the inshore fishery on the water, but also in terms of what you know the receptivity looks like on on land, so. You know, to be able to then go to communities like Petty Harbor, where there are still fisheries that operate, is is a real blessing. Like I, I worried when I was writing the book that I might be meeting, and I'm sure I did, that I might be meeting some of the last inshore fishers in those communities. 
um, you know, and that I would be visiting communities like Carpoon on the tip of the Northern Peninsula, which is one of the communities that, you know, will be slated for resettlement. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I talked to the last one or two inshore fishermen in that community. Wow. So it's still happening like 30 years later. This is still, this is still happening. There are still communities that will close because of, because of fisheries that, that closed years ago. And, you know, and it, it reminds me a lot of the, the stories and the pains that indigenous people across Canada talk about, um, you know, like the, um, the, the various scoops and the resettlements and colonization impacts and stuff. And, and they talk about it in this, this thing of intergenerational trauma. Um, and, and it's literally something that generations today are born with and they're passed on, um, you know, horrific traumas, um, that happened to great grandfathers and grandmothers and stuff that they wouldn't, wouldn't know. And, and, and it, this this story really struck me that way as well. Um, like we said, the moratorium has been 30 years. She said, you know, you might have spoke to like the last inshore fisherman, but it's like this trauma is going, you know, to probably in some form follow your daughter through her her life and other families and stuff, right? Like it's just a it's a it's a very new concept for me. Um, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm picking it up from the indigenous stories in Canada and the and the history, this inner concept of intergenerational trauma. And I very much yeah. see that here. Um I think World War One, World War Two was like that. Um, yes. you know, families of deceased people are still, you know, impacted by that. And um yeah, it's, it's, it's just, I, I think this is why it's so important to talk about this is there's such a, there's a conservation issue of the cod, um, but there's this massive um, human impact, uh, you know, as, as well, yeah. an extinction event. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, that, that's really been my primary interest. It, it wasn't, when I wrote the book, my primary interest was, I mean, I'm, my, my father was, was dying. Mm-hmm. He had palliative cancer. And I just knew that if I didn't do this now, I wouldn't have an opportunity, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I also, we had just had our first daughter, our first child, and I wanted her to know where she came from. And so those were, I mean, those were kind of my reasons behind writing the book. And I originally hadn't intended to insert myself in the book, but in chatting with the publisher and their understanding that, um, you know, they felt that that was really important. And I think it was a good editing decision to, to put myself in the book Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and to to put those, those stories in the book. Um, And I also tried, I wanted to be able to relay Yes, there was a story of loss, but I think there was also this story of everyone I talked to, whether they had been directly or indirectly involved in the fishery, the moratorium was this event that somehow informed their identity. So Brad Watkins, you know, it's interesting, everybody's leaving the fishery, he graduates high school, and he's just, he's just entering the fishery at this time, and, you know, He's, his father is already into shellfish, like shrimp and crab. And so he feels like while there's communities being shuttered, they're coming into riches because shellfish and crab is really what, you know, hauled people who wanted to stay in fisheries 
in wild fisheries to be able to continue to do that. Um, you know, so for him, it was incredibly pivotal or someone like April McDonald, who we chatted about earlier, who her father's a fisherman, he actually just is retiring this year, an intro fisherman on the west coast of, of Newfoundland and Labrador. And she somehow, you know, growing up in a rural community and seeing these communities disappear and houses be abandoned, started to become a historian of, of sorts, um, where she felt this onus and responsibility to photograph houses and, and communities that you know, who, know, who knows if they would be around. And in fact, one of the properties that we visited and explored as part of the book, she sent me a picture of it last year and, and it's leveled. I mean, the, the second oh. floor fell into the first floor. It's, you know, it's, uh, so I'm glad, I mean, I felt worried when we went in the house at the time, <laughs> um, but I'm glad we did it. I'm, I'm really glad that we did that. We had an opportunity and, and also that I could see that through her eyes, somebody who is still living there she still has family in this location. She still has a direct connection to the fishery and her father. And yet, you know, she's doing a really important piece of documenting history in this artistic way. Um, so, you know, now I, I think I, my, my interest in trying to relay this story is to see the cod moratorium and really the cod fishery collapse the story of, of Atlantic cod gain its rightful place in, in Canadian history and global history. Yeah, um, we're yeah. not there yet, but I still, I mean, <laughs> there's a reporter that's coming from, from um, Norway who says, I think what's happening here is exactly what happened there. And, you know, it, it, I, people always in Newfoundland and Labrador, they reference Iceland and Denmark and Norway as having these flourishing cod fisheries. And, you know, I think if we if we don't know our history well, we are at risk of of repeating it. Um, and so, you know, that's been a real focus of of my work as of late. Yeah, no, that's that's kind of always what you want is for you know this this much work to for for somebody to pick it up and and see something in it and and maybe preempt or prevent or change the course uh, of of history. You know, you'd hope, you know, uh, a lot of human stories as we haven't had a great track record of that, but um, yeah. well, it, it's something yeah. we can never give up on is learning from the past and talking to each other and, and, and trying to prevent that, you know, somebody else's fishery from, from them doing, making the same mistakes. So take us back to 1992 or where you feel kind of like, you know, where you need yep. to go before that and, and walk us through the, the, the government decision, the moratorium, the two-year moratorium while the cod yeah. stocks are supposed to I, recover. <laughs> walk us through what? that decision. Like what, what led it? Why did it come about the way it did? What were, what's the story? I, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm always trying to remind myself because I've, I've heard everything like people will say we knew it was coming and other people who say they had no idea it was coming. Mm. And that, you know, the day that the moratorium is announced, they got to spend a week. I mean, Eugene Maloney was one of the fishermen who passed away last year, who I profile in the book. And he talks about having to spend the next four or five days hauling up his cod traps. He had no idea that this was coming. And he was in Babel's the, the day before when John Crosby is is there. And we know that the announcement is coming. But this year, CBC had asked me to reflect on 
you know, what have we really learned? And I, I went mm-hmm. back to, there was a, a report that had come out in 1982, federal government report. And I'm referencing the, the article here now from, from CDC in Newfoundland and Labrador. It was the Task Force on Atlantic Fisheries. It was popularly called the Kirby Report. So it's interesting because in that report it says, although the industry, fishing industry, has many problems, a shortage of fish is not one of them. And, you know, we know now that a shortage of fish would become the insurmountable problem a decade later. One decade later, it was, it was a problem so much so that the federal government, you know, no politicking around. They absolutely had to close the fishery. There were no cod. There was, you know, fleets weren't catching anything. So, um, you know, it was interesting that in the early 1980s, it was the threat of a financial collapse, not the cod collapse that, that caught everyone's attention. And I think what we know now, in hindsight, are that many of the fisheries models at that time were flawed in that they assumed cod had high productivity. And it's because they did for so many years, I mean, for centuries. And it was in the 1960s when there was really, we talked about earlier, industrialized fishing, you know, you had as many as a thousand bottom trawlers. Many of these were foreign. Many would have been the largest of their kind fishing uh, and at the Grand Banks at that time. And so just so people appreciate, you know, they're, they're called bottom trawlers because they had wide mouth fishing nets or trawls and they would haul along the ocean floor and they're banned in today's commercial fishery. But, you know, pre-moratorium, they accounted for 80 to 100 percent of the offshore cod landings. Um, you know, many of those were factory freezers and they were equipped to process and, and freeze blocks of cod at sea. So it was very much a, you know, um, frozen fish market. Previous to that, of course, there was a big salt cod fishery. And uh, today, although the trawls are banned, 15 years later, the federal government did reopen a small commercial cod fishery. And now the gear of choice are gillnets. Um, so 80% of the, the much smaller, it's a fraction of the quota that was allowable pre-1992, but you know, a good 80% of what's fished from the Northwest Atlantic by way of cod is fished via gillnet. Um, you do see an increase in handline cod fishers. And if you happen to be in Ottawa or Toronto, Montreal, you can get a, a feed of Fogo Island cod as an example, where you know they've tried to turn the the kind of fish stick model that the Newfoundland cod fishery was built on after the salt cod, salt cod fishery into a fillet um, market. And mm-hmm. also trying Fair to value. kind of, you know, rem- exactly. And remove that middleman of, of trying to get from fish straight to table in this case in restaurants. So you know, there's been a lot of learning, but I think that unquestionably people understand that when there was that initial decline of cod stocks in the 1960s leading up to the moratorium that that was largely due to overfishing interestingly when you get closer to the moratorium itself there's some disagreement about what led to that catastrophic collapse at that time so i think a lot of independent scientists would overwhelmingly point to the role of overfishing but interestingly you know there was a paper that had come out last year um and it had criticized the Fisheries and Oceans Canada as saying that they had not taken seriously enough then and now the role that overfishing has played and continues to play 
in the slow regrowth of, of uh, cod. And if you do look at the rebuilding plan, uh, which is one of the first in a, in a series of rebuilding plans that the federal government is creating for imperiled fish species as part of um, amendments to the Federal Fisheries Act, um, you know, they say that they, the independent scientists uh, who, like Jeff Hutchings, like George Rose, Peter Shelton, who, you know, they've written about cod, northern cod, Atlantic cod for decades, um, that DFO hasn't taken seriously enough the role that overfishing has played. Um, they agree that these other causes, natural causes, like uh, due to climate change, warming environment, lack of prey, such as capelin, those are issues too. But I think you hear a lot of the independent scientists saying, we need to make more of the role that overfishing played then and arguably continues to play now when you still have Atlantic cod in, in the critical zone. They're still critically yeah. depleted 30 years later. Yeah. And I remember uh, in the book you were talking about there was, and this must have been just before the moratorium, because um, you were kind of talking about like the ec the impending economic collapse and, and it, right. it almost sounded like, like the government was seeing this coming and the economic collapse sort of meant that um, resettlement and like all of uh, the government um, bio packages and retirement packages and all the money they were going to have to spend on, on this economic collapse in Newfoundland, Labrador, that they wanted to economically or politically prevent that. So there was this huge increase in the quotas, like leading up to the moratorium. Did, did I, did I get that right? Like it was all of a sudden it was like, you know, there was these signs, these signals, you know, of the declines and the fishermen were saying like, look, we're not catching them. And the models are saying, well, they should be there. Um, they decided yeah. to like up, up the quotas to try to, you know, f prevent an economic collapse is, is that, was that I mean, a right? I think you're absolutely right that there was, hmm. it's interesting. It wasn't just leading up to the moratorium, but getting back to that Kirby report, you know, it, that was the financial collapse of the fishery was always a worry. And if you look back through history, the, the fishing industry had often received, you know, infusions of public funds. And in that report, it had talked about, you know, that it happened in 1968, it happened in 1974 through 1976. And there was always this worry that it would, there would continue to be a need for federal um, government bailouts. And, um, you know, that report had talked about how, but wait, we're going to see growth in Northern Cod because the models at the time painted a picture that were remarkably rosy. And so just going back to it, it said by 1987, so the report comes out in 1982, they had predicted best, best available science at the time based on the fisheries models and projections. It said that by 1987, the ground fish harvest was expected to reach 1.1 million tons. And just for context, that would have been an increase of about 400,000 tons over 1981. Half of that had been attributed to cod alone. So of all ground fish, it was attributed to cod and most of that was going to happen in the shores off of Newfoundland and Labrador. So there were just so many hopes pinned on northern cod saving the fishery. And, you know, it's interesting because in chatting with Jeff Hutchings and George Rose and other fishery scientists, 
um, I said, look, I've talked to intro fishermen and some of them said that they saw this coming because they saw declining catch rates. And at the same time, most scientists and managers didn't recognize that problem. And when I chatted with Jeff Hutchings about that at the time, he said that it's probably because people didn't take seriously fishermen as intro fishermen, particularly as a reliable source of information. Yeah. I remember reading that. That's yeah. And I, you know, now it's interesting because in my reporting, as much as I really am comfortable and getting more comfortable with the science, and I, I always try to elucidate, well, what does the best available science tell us? And also what are its gaps and limitations? But I think what's crucially important is talking to people with boots and boats and harbors where this is happening. And I sometimes have to be really creative about how I do that. Like I did, a, I did um, some reporting recently where I was talking to people about climate change and what they've seen by way of changes as a result of you know, the climate crisis. And many fishermen felt that, that was a scientifically laden term. And they were like, oh, I don't know anything about that. And so I said, well, how's the weather changed? And they would talk about how the Northwest Atlantic Ocean is trending stormy or how places where they used to go to find a plentiful supply of fish, they now had to go further afield. Mm. And, you know, what, you know, or that the sea ice was weakening. Um, that some years there would be very little ice as compared to other years. And it wasn't sort of this consistent trend line, but that over time there would be fewer ice days, for example, sea ice uh, days. And wouldn't you know, that's backed by the best available scientific evidence. But interesting to me that, you know, you really have to find the inroad, I think, to talk to people about it. And, and even now, I think there's much better work on the part of Fisheries and Oceans Canada and governments to bridge these gaps and make sure that they're talking to the people with boots and boats and harbors. But I would say there's still not the, the intention and focus that there needs to be because, you know, who cares more about the depletion of a resource than those who live and depend on it and live next yeah. to it? Yeah. And, 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 and all of that knowledge and, and, you know, I understand from a scientific perspective, like people's personal experiences trying to say, you know, this is what's going on, you know, at a big picture, because, you know, it's like yeah. they only go out at certain times or, you know, right. like there's all these kind of biases or For like, sure. Oh, I want to see lots of whatever. And Oh, I always see lots of whatever, or, you know, yeah. but but the, there's a few things that stand out and, and from having scientists on this show that I think really resonates with this this part of the COD story, which was the scientists sort of like discounting what the fishers were, were saying, right? Like that, that gap you talked about. And one of them was, and I think this Curtis, I think this was Dr. Uh, um, Clayton Lamb on our show, Grizzly Bear Researcher. Uh, caribou researcher and 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 he was saying you know you'll hear this thing where they'll research something and produce the results and then the boots on the ground people will be like that's what we were telling you you spent all this money <laughs> and it's like if you'd have just listened to us in the first yeah. place like um yeah but his perspective wasn't and he's young is that's a good thing in science when yes. using the scientific method validates what the fishers are saying or what the hunters are saying yeah. or what the trappers are saying. Um, and then there's also the other perspective is when there is a big difference, then the scientists are like, 
why is my research saying something so different than all these other people that are out there? And another good friend of ours that's been on the show a few times, Dr. Adam Ford from UBC Okanagan campus, has said, I will never, I'm paraphrasing, Adam, you can tell me I did this wrong. Um, (laughs) But it was something along the lines of like, I will never let my science or my data trump the knowledge and experience of people that are living it. Mm. Um, So he's always humble enough to step back. and, And if there is the difference, he's like, well, well, why, what, what, what did I miss? You know, what question, what further research can I do based on, on what people are saying? And that was really a piece in the COD story that I saw was a really tragic part of it was these, this, this failure of all these people and half a century Mm -hmm. of knowledge that's passed on was just discounted. And the only thing I can think it was is maybe just a generation of scientists who sort of like ivory tower egos were like, you can't, you know, take the word of these, these people that are just fishers, right? Like, I, I don't know. What, well, and what's I your think take it was just that? also, I mean, I think it was just so unfathomable that it would happen. And I, I don't mm. doubt that in those, you know, in the, in the year, like the, the, the couple of years leading up to the moratorium, that evidence of a problem was there. Because if you, if you, you know, look at um, the, the data that Hutchings and Rand Myers presented, which talks about, you know, more fish were caught from the Northwest Atlantic between 1960 and 1975 than had ever been caught in the 250 year period between 1500 and 1750. Like, and they, and, you know, they had the, this was after the moratorium that they, they did this work. But relying on, um, you know, data then that existed um, at that time, but for whatever reason, I think the cod stocks had always produced in the same way that, you know, just to think that in a decade preceding the moratorium and with this threat of financial collapse, that to think now that at the time they put all of their energy in the gold of the cod will save us is remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable to me that that was that was the thinking. So, I don't like I said I don't doubt that people who were close to it and they were they lived their life on the water, they were day in day out you know inshore fishers, um, that they they must have seen the writing on the wall. Mm-hmm. But then you meet people like Eugene Maloney who he's he's hauling up cod traps, and I, I think it was also there, there was also ex- expectation from those who, you know, fish while in wild fisheries, that some years are better than others. And so, you know, you diversify. And so it might be a bad year for cod, but it might be a great year for haddock. And um, that that's why I think it has worked. It had, had worked so well. But then when you're trying to fish as much as you can, to the extent that you can, um, and and having, you know, rosy projections and, and rosy, ideas of what, how, you know, how the cod quote unquote will perform and what their productivity will be, then of course that's going to be a flawed system. And, you know, now um, that we better understand that cod aren't just out there kind of fishing on their own, they're interacting with other species and they're in their ecosystems. You know, I mean, fisheries managers still don't use those, that, that data and information to inform mm. fisheries management plans. Increasingly they are. But they will tell you that 
it's it's not where they'd like it to be based on what they know. Hmm. So you know, we I think there there's a lot of work to be done to to better understand how we can manage wild fisheries in a way that really does protect and promote. And that, that's in legislation, the Federal Fisheries Act. You know, that is the responsibility of the, the federal government. So, you know, there's an onus there to, to, to work on getting this right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's just, uh, I mean, I remember as a kid, um, young adult, you know, hearing about the moratorium, um, you know, the announcement and, you know, the news stories of like the angry fishers in the, and, and Crosby and, you know, like, it's just, it's in the back of my mind kind of thing, like vaguely, but, uh, yeah. you know, just not, um, you know, it, as a Canadian, like, I don't have family roots here. I don't have heritage, like just the, the, the full, the full ramifications, the full impact of that was just not something that, um, that was taught in school or really landed, you know, you know, heavily on it. And, and, you know, it, it's great that I am learning it and we are talking about this, but it's like 30, 30 years later. And, and, um, and, and so I wanted to just kind of shift gears a little bit and get your thoughts yeah. around like the social cost, the social impacts of that day in 1992 because it was 30 years uh, ago this this july H how can you yeah. encapsulate that is there a bunch of things is there themes is there one person's story your family's story how can you paint or describe this this human impact to what we did to a fish yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting because I've found that it's really hard for people to care about a fish. And maybe, maybe you can chat, chat a little bit about that and why, because it might seem counterintuitive, but, you know, I took my, my twins who just turned two on their first cod fishing trip um, <laughs> a month ago. And so let's, let's come back to that. But I mean, I think think that the moratorium itself um it's interesting because i i was trying to think about how do i relay this and and of course when i'm sitting down and writing the book i'm i've talked to many people and as i mentioned earlier found that there was this common theme of we felt that that period was identifying um and for me being 12 at the time I'm coming into my own and figuring out who I am and my place in the universe and where I'm from. And it really felt like the bottom was falling out of Newfoundland Labrador. And, you know, these same fishermen and, and plant workers that were in their element and seemed, you know, in harmony with their surroundings were suddenly thrust into the summertime news. And at that time, I mean, everybody watched the summertime news, right? I mean, that's, it was always on in, in the background. And so, suddenly they had become these fishermen, the school of fish out of water. And that was one thing, but I think the other part of it was that as much as it was defining for me, it also defined for Canadians who Newfoundlanders and Labradorians were, um, you know, mm. because then there were packages handed out and well, what were people going to do for work? And of course, many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians left, left and started working 
in uh, seasonal and, and work elsewhere, like in Alberta on the oil sands, and they continued to leave home for, for work. And it was just such an instrumental time. You know, I think as much as it's been difficult for people to appreciate what happened to the fish, they do appreciate what happened to the workers. They do appreciate what happened to the communities, that the same communities that were settled and you know, prosperous because of COD were suddenly shuttered. Um, some were able to pivot and, and there's hope stories in that, like the stories of the Eugene Maloney's who, you know, he hauls up his God traps and he's able to continue building boats. And he did that right up into his eighties. By the time I'd met him, he had, he was working on his, you know, 70 something boat and he built every kind of boat you could imagine he had three sheds it was like this perfect shed to house ratio three sheds one house he built it all overlooking where he used to fish you know not everybody had that story where they were able to stay in rural newfoundland and you know today when you look at what people care about they care about jobs in rural communities and still the fishing vessels in many rural communities in newfoundland Labrador are the lifeblood of those communities, the plants, the, you know, the fish plants, they are the lifeblood of, of those communities. Um, you know, it's interesting because further down the line is, is appreciating and understanding our role in being able to address climate change and, and to think about biodiversity and biodiversity loss, because now we're not just contending with overfishing and the ghost effects of poor past management. Now we're dealing with, you know, the unknowns associated with climate change. And I, I think right now, as much as we're learning about that in science, it still feels somewhat intangible for people on the ground whose lives have been made and, and you know, they've been economically prosperous in living off these resources. So what do you do when those resources are gone? You haul up and, and leave. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm spending my career trying to make sense of how do I relay what happened at that time for a broader audience so that people can mm. see themselves in this. And sometimes it's been through relaying that story of a 12 year old myself, because I think even people now when you think about 12 year olds in the pandemic, what are they going to be writing, you know, 30 years from now, <laughs> 10 years from now. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's, you can't go anywhere in Newfoundland Labrador and not feel that COD's presence and now its absence has influenced that region entirely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, whether it's even in those, those quintessential picture perfect tourism ads, you know, think about the battery on the north side of St. John's Harbor. That was settled because of the cod fishery. That was originally settled because of the cod fishery. Very little cod fishing goes on from the battery. There is still an active uh, fishing port on the opposite side, the south side, where uh, fishing boats come in and will land or catch. But, you know, when you look at the battery, you can see old fishing premises and houses that were built on shoreline rocks for the proximity to fishing and also to be able to land and, and process your catch. Of course, it does none of that now, right? Um, and so even in that, which is a very desirable community, many people like to stay there, whether they live there or they visit and stay, it's, it's, it's a remnant of that, you know, now, why would you build your home there? Um, yeah. 
Yeah. You know, whereas at the time it made sense. People lived in close proximity to to fishing and particularly cod fishing as much as Newfoundland Labrador has an enviable supply of all kinds of seafood. Cod is really, I think, the fish that that made Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah. And, 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 and it's culture. And like you said at the beginning, it's culture, it's art, it's it, culture. It, like everything was tied to it. And, and, yeah. and there's such a fascinating part of um, Canada's history, because, you know, we hear that similar, um, that similar storyline in indigenous people in this country. So they were here before, before the European settlers. And, you know, yes. we hear, this nation is like the salmon people or, you know, the fish people or something And this culture, uh, like, you know, on the West coast is, is completely about salmon and the the cycle of it and the community coming together. And now we're seeing collapses of salmon runs and arguments over fish going on to, um, the federal species at risk act and, you know, all the same, the same things. And this yes. culture of people whose identity is this this fish, I, I found a remarkable parallel, not, you know, as long as, as a history of North American indigenous people, but, but kind of the same story. It's like it's these people's identity was built around uh, a fish. And uh, and then the fish was gone. And, and you know, I, I realized it, trans you know this this theme transcends you know cultures um but it also helps me appreciate when i see the same story you know happening elsewhere and when indigenous people are talking about pacific salmon and those sorts Mm -hmm. of things but but this was a very you know uh, a non-indigenous story of a culture that was tied to a fish and and yeah yeah, and the loss well, and I still, I, I've been trying to, in my reporting, relay more Indigenous perspectives. And part of that is, mm-hmm. you know, trust building. And and I, I think that that story has still yet to be told. But I do, in, in talking, um, you know, to different interviewees uh, who are Indigenous. And, you know, one of the things that was relayed to me was, you know, all federal departments now have the mandate to pursue truth and reconciliation. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. fisheries is really poised. I mean, we know that, and there's been more conversation about that across the country. Um, but it, it's really, I think there is an onus there to really uh, dig in and, and have these difficult conversations and, you know, it's, it's, I'm still learning about that, but I, I do also see that Indigenous people have a greater appreciation for how humans live in their environment and with their environment symbiotically. Mm. And, and mm-hmm. I, I think there's a great deal that can be learned. And, and in a, a report I had done at the same time, um, so last year in March, I did a piece uh, for the Narwhal and had interviewed folks um, uh, from Nunatukavit in Southern Labrador, and they had talked about, you know, there's so much knowledge that can be shared. When we think about uh, on Northern cod that for, you know, centuries, cod had been fished sustainably. Um, And they felt that there just wasn't 
any attention paid to that knowledge and, and history. Um, and there really ought to be. And, and for me, I just it keeps coming back to the point. I keep seeing this trend of those who live in close proximity to, you know, a natural environment or wildlife have the greatest at stake when that um, entity is, is threatened. And so mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. what makes them, I think, such crucially important, more than stakeholders, but they're so crucially important to thinking about what the future can look like. Um, and not a fishery story, but a, but a fisherman, a fisherman I spoke with in Maine, who in the fishing season is a fisherman and he's, uh, has a Inuit crew and they fish a whole range of species. I last saw him when they were fishing crab off the coast of Southern Labrador a couple months ago, but come winter, he then operates and does ice reconnaissance uh, for a number of research groups. He also facilitates and takes researchers out into the field all throughout the year. And it's interesting because Nain and uh, Nunatsiavut, I think, you know, has become a place where researchers wouldn't even dream of visiting these places without having uh, local people with local knowledge and experience to support that work and actually be involved and have formal roles in that work. And so there are, I think, great examples and points of light where those who live day in and day out on the water, on the land, on the ice, um, and that they have, you know, centuries of history behind them, traditional knowledge uh, connected with Western knowledge. And that to me is what the future can look like. You know, it's, it's mm -hmm, here, but mm -hmm. it's not yet evenly distributed. And yeah. um, even when you look at the Federal Fisheries Act, there's a lot of great language in there. You know, I would love to see our fisheries protected and promoted. But, do, you know, are Canadians aware that it was only a couple of years ago that the Federal Fisheries Act, one of our oldest pieces of legislation, was amended to include that? Yeah. You know, before that, yeah. there wasn't the responsibility to protect and promote. Um, you know, and so far, we're not quite there when you look at the rebuilding plans. They've been, for cod, for mackerel, they've been quite criticized by independent scientists. So, which is good. We want there to be public criticism because that's only how they can be improved and get better. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the the turnaround's got to be faster because you know species, the fish are the ones taking the hit for it, and you know when when we finally get all of our ducks in a row, then you know like the cod, they're at a level where maybe they can't recover, or it takes centuries for them to recover, and I yeah. guess that's probably a frustration for a lot of people is just like how slow the wheels of bureaucracy of getting to these concepts that don't seem to be that hard yeah you know you, you you brought up a really good point and this is um sort of about the federal oversight of fisheries and oceans in this country um i do and i think others feel that that is part of the problem that we have with fisheries in this country we have Ottawa, um, you know, trying to control things, um, you know, on the coast that they're separated mm -hmm. from. When you bring in these cultural pieces, these indigenous pieces, they're even farther removed, um, but they're the decision makers. And yeah. this idea of, like, you know, you just said it, that the, the people there have to be considered more than a stakeholder. It, it It's almost like 
uh, and I think he taught, there was this, it was talked about in the book about like this adjacency concept. Yeah. It's like, yes, you know, federal migratory birds and ocean species belong to all Canadians. There's this federal oversight, but there's this idea of adjacency and it's, and it's where people know the most, they're closely connected and the cultures are connected. That's where the management needs to be more heavily weighted to be driven from. And you talked about there was a model in Newfoundland where DFO and the province or the communities kind of partnered on sort of a, it almost seemed like it was a, that sort of a model, like local shared federal to shared decision-making kind of process. And then it was like, whatever it was in 2016, DFO pulled the funding on it. So I, what, what are your thoughts around that future of who, who should who the regulator should be, where, where should that power lie? Provinces? Yeah. I mean, federal. I mean, one thing I, it's, it's tricky, right? Because I think that we are so caught up in fisheries managers that the, the tool in their tool belt that they consistently rely on is, is quota. You know, how many fish to take out of the water. Hmm. And I think that, there are other tools. Um, I wrote a piece for the Globe and Mail last year that talked about gear restrictions. And so, you know, what would it look like to further limit gillnets, for example, and to consider more hand lining um, and to kind of, you know, speed up this process of moving to the fillet model, um, less quantity, greater quality. And I think the other, so, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about how much we fish we there's more room in the conversation to talk about how we fish in terms of gear types and then there's also for me whose voice counts and although federal you know the federal fisheries department talks about undertaking massive consultation and they do they can show you the paperwork it's still not felt that it's adequate and so that not needs to be cracked and you know, I'm doing a story now about a girls who fish program in, in Canada, for example, and its goal is to, you know, women have always played a role in the fishery, but um, often it's in these kind of veiled crew, hidden behind the scenes. Uh, but I, I've been after trying to, you know, trying to understand who takes a conservation-minded approach to fishing. Um, because I, I, I truly believe that we need that. I mean, I, th- I think that the world is dependent on, on wild fisheries. And while aquaculture continues to grow in Canada, you know, 80% um, of the, 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 when you look at it from a financial perspective, the dollars that are uh, generated come from wild fisheries. And, you know, the world is, it, it continues to need and, and eat wild, wild fish. Um, but, you know, I'm really interested in understanding those who are interested in seeing a future fishery and not depleting that which we have now. Um, mm. and, and I think there are examples of that. Um, and, you know, I don't have the answer, but I think that the current model where we focus almost exclusively on the Goldie stocks, you know, some people will think it's not enough. Some people will think it's too much. Or very few will think it's just right. We need to move beyond that and, and really, no doubt, there has to continue to be uh, those measures taken. But I do think we need to spend an awful lot more time thinking about 
how we fish, who gets to make these decisions. You know, you talk to some people in Newfoundland Labrador and they say that moratorium didn't happen in 1992. It happened in 1949 when, you know, Newfoundland joined Confederation and the decision making left the shores of Newfoundland Labrador and started, you know, being the, the decision point of paper pushers in Ottawa. And I don't entirely buy that. Like, I don't think that if suddenly the province took over fisheries that the problem would be solved. And in fact, I, I'm almost in disbelief that in that Newfoundland Labrador does not have a fisheries department. It some years ago combined fisheries with, with agriculture. And I understand, you know, some of the arguments behind that, but if you're wanting to have a strong foothold in an industry that, you know, even accounting for inflation makes three times as much today as it did pre-moratorium, even though there's way fewer fishing vessels and people fishing and, you know, many of the stocks of many fisheries are, are depleted, it still continues to generate a, a huge amount of revenue. I think more could be done in terms of, you know, that relationship and, protecting the interests of Newfoundlanders and, and Labradorians. Interestingly, the last time I was in St. John's just this past month, I met with a group who are pushing forward a healthy Atlantic Ocean bylaw. It's not yet championed by city councillors, but it's being presented to the St. John's City Council. It could be adopted and adapted in any municipality. And it, it stems from these rights of nature laws which really, I think, first came into Western law back in 1972 in the U.S. Supreme Court. And there are, you know, basically what it would do, it would grant natural entities like coastal waters, ocean, you know, um, wildlife, species, plants, um, personhood, or at least the rights that municipalities and corporations enjoy so that they could uh, take legal, you know, claims and rights for environmental justice. And interestingly, in the States, there are a few such uh, cases underway where, you know, salmon is a plaintiff, wild rice is a plaintiff, you've got waterways as plaintiffs. And so, you know, I do wonder, it, it, I, I wanted to cover that story because to me, federal and you could point to some provincial examples as well insofar as open pen um, fish farming, that is in on the East Coast managed provincially, where you know measures meant to protect and promote have failed. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so, you know, what can municipalities do? What can everyday citizens do to become law drafters and law adopters and law enforcers? And you know, right now there's one entity in Canada that has a, a rights of nature bylaw, and that's the Magpie River in Quebec. Um, but you know. There's a there's an example there, so I'll be yeah, very and that was that was a, I remember covering that story. That's a city bylaw, so it's like it doesn't yes. officially like have provincial legislation, but it's it's exactly right. what you're talking about, right? Yeah, using, yeah, and it just gives that. another oh. it, it gives another I think approach um, where if you're fed up with you know what has happened federally or provincially, then you know look at these examples that are rolling out um, your local tools. At, at, Exactly. Huh. Wow, that's super interesting. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's a rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a quick answer there. If there were, then, uh, you know, well, that would be my next book. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, uh, you know, just on the uh, 
I'll, as a reader of your book, I, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you two thoughts that struck me about the impacts of the moratorium on Newfoundland Labrador culture. Uh, one, it was that story you talked about earlier about how the wharfs were these community places. And there was one part where they were talking about like the, the, the ships would come in and the kids would rush down like to meet their fathers and, and the community would come down to see like what, what was the catch this time and just this whole story about like the town coming down to the war. And it reminds me of like, you know, the park and maybe a, um, a community that's inland or something like this gathering place of people. And then like you talked about that, that, that um, part where Crosby walked on, on that day that the decision was made and trying to retrace that. And, 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 and it was this industrialized um, Marine center that was servicing the, the, the oil rigs. Like it just, that to me, I don't know if it's just because of my age and sort of looking back on those childhood things and going, oh, that was the vast vacant lot that we explored and there was like monsters and all this kind of stuff and it's a housing development. You know you know how that, that right. hits us as we get older? So, so that story about the wharves um, really, really hit me um, as a significant impact to a loss of of Newfoundland Labrador culture, because that's, you know, that's not something I grew up with. Like we gathered, you know, at a wharf, we gathered outside to play street hockey or, you know, whatever, but I could, I could relate to that, you know, you know, so much. And then the other piece that really struck me was, was the sort of the gut wrenching part about resettlement. Yeah. About governments having to tell communities you have to make a choice and and these communities would vote on whether or not they wanted to shut their towns down and the government would pay them to relocate them elsewhere um and and the number was pretty high it was like 80 or 90 percent or something was like the threshold that a community had and and if you were like no i want to live here i'm third generation this is my family's house i want to stay here and your community votes for resettlement, you know, every family gets a quarter of a million dollars to leave or whatever. And then the government comes along and says, you're welcome to stay. It's your property, but we're pulling the plug on your power, your sewer, your services, everything. And I I was just like putting myself there and I would be one of the ones where like, I don't want to leave. I'm not a city person. Um, Wow. Did those really, really impacted me? those two things. It's interesting because I don't think people realize that as much as, you know, many, there have been a series of three resettlement programs in the history of Newfoundland Labrador. Um, One specifically that was fisheries household resettlement, recognizing that fisheries were closing, you know, in the, in the seventies and late sixties. And there continues today. So there was one that preceded that there was fisheries household resettlement program. And today there's a provincial program. You still need the 90%, uh, close Mm -hmm. to 90% Mm -hmm. of the the buy-in of the community. And so, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to visit Carpoon on the northern tip of the um, northern peninsula of the island portion of the province was because, you know, they are one such community that might be like one or two votes shy of everybody hauling up and leaving. 
And, you know, I, I understood that there were 70 people that lived in that community. I got to tell you, if I saw seven, like <laughs> I never saw 70 yeah. people, but um, there's also an interesting case because the most recent examples of resettlement are little bay islands on the north central coast of the island portion of Newfoundland, which just was resettled uh, a couple of years ago. And there is a couple who decided to stay and they, you can, Mike Parsons, um, is the gentleman who stays there and you can follow him on Facebook. He's written his first book. He, it's really interesting to watch because they, they did not want to leave and they didn't. And they've mm. been making what seems to be a, a, a beautiful life in Little Bay Islands. The oh, other cool. community is Williams Harbor, which was resettled in 2017 on the South coast of the Southern coast of Labrador, which is just off of Mary's Harbor, beautiful part of, so I mean, all of Labrador is beautiful, but this area, you've got Williams Harbor on one side, Battle Harbor, which used to be the saltfish capital, you know, of the world. And then Mary's Harbor, which is still very much a vibrant fishing community in Labrador. And so, you know, many of the communities who've been resettled, they're still within like, you know, a boat ride to where they, uh, their families once, mm. once lived. But right. um, interestingly, we uh, were working on a, a team that I'm working with, uh, working on a film about resettlement that was that's inspired by fisheries household mm. resettlement. But we thought, how can we contemporize this story? Because now when you think about why Canadians will have to leave their homes, it's mostly going to be, and it's mostly as a result of, you know, natural disasters that are happening as a result of climate change. So floods, forest fires, you know, mm -hmm, weakening mm -hmm, sea ice mm -hmm. um, in the north where ice is such an important infrastructure. So we are, we're working on that now for release next year. Um, but it was inspired by fisheries household resettlement and um, the fact that that still goes on today. Wow. Mm. Wow. wow. But, um, and then sort of the other thing I was just thinking nope. about the, the community, the wharf, that's exactly why I wanted to take my kids fishing. And, right. you know, it's not something that we're going to be able to do all the time and, and nor something that I think we ought to do all the time, but I, I want them to have a voice on this and I want them to understand that culture and community. And so, you know, when I do go back to Newfoundland, I mean, I go there regularly for work. I live now in, in Southern Ontario, but I, you know, my work is all tied up in Newfoundland, Labrador, and my family is still there. And I, of course, will continue to go back and, and um, you know, pursue these themes. But when I bring my family with me, the degree to which I can bring them out and, and have them experience fishing and these fishing communities, that's really important to me. I think that, you know, kids are spending a lot of time behind screens and not having the ability to, to get out into their universe uh, absolutely. and explore. Yep. And I just, I just don't think that they would have a voice on this or appreciate it without, without being there in person. Um, and, you know, some of the science backs this up. I, I wouldn't say there's like rigorous science behind this, but I, there is science that was looking at, you know, if you're able to identify the fish you're eating, you're more likely to care about, um, you know, the the wherewithal, the well-being of that fish. So, you know, I want them to understand and to ask, where is this from? You yeah, know, what absolutely. practices are you endorsing? Yeah, absolutely. All oh, those, those are great. 
great life lessons that transcends fishing, hunting, trapping, just, you know, all, all those things as well. And in, in getting kids to, you know, it, that it's, it's, it's a vehicle to care about the world that, it you is. know, that, that we're it interacting is. with. And, um, yeah. and that's, yeah, the, um, the resettlement thing, it, it reminds me, Curtis, when we had Paul Ernott on the podcast yeah. a couple of years ago. Paul yeah. is the director of wildlife and environment for Nunavut. He is a oh. nook and he told us the story of when he was very little um, and the government took Inuit people off the land and moved them into settlements and the government built yeah four-walled houses which they called the matchbox houses right like it's just it this you know and the residential school thing and and the resettlement in in um you know in newfoundland labrador it's like it's this this theme throughout canada's history that's just really really gut-wrenching and um and this this is the first time it's really sunk in to me is the impacts of that on people's lives that that weren't indigenous people that, you know, that were uprooted and moved to reserve or to the matchbox houses and stuff in, in the Arctic. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a bigger thing in Canada's history. Right. And yeah. Well, and the thing I think is so interesting about the Inuit homeland too, which is actually interesting where we're focusing our, our work is, you know, there's such amazing examples of self-determination and adapting to, because they're feeling these, you know, effects of climate change faster being in the Arctic and subarctic than anywhere else where critical infrastructure like ice is weakening and, you know, they're learning about it and learning how to stay. And so, you know, I hope that there's going to be lessons in that. Um, and there are examples in Newfoundland Labrador where communities opted to stay. Fogo Island would be the, you know, the, the popular one that was captured in a national film board film. Um, you know, Fogo, you know, it has challenges, every community does, but it, but it continues to thrive today. And I think being able to tell the stories of communities that persisted in the face of these grand challenges that, that you know, otherwise would have forced them to, to exit and, and shutter mm-hmm. their communities. That's the, like, I'm really hoping that that's the story we're gonna be able to nail because whether or not Canadians realize it, it's it's hit it's it's hitting close to home for people um, that whether temporarily or altogether having to leave because of you know the forces that are that are upon us, um, but also learning that history of what you know as you mentioned about the intergenerational trauma, like what 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 did that mean for people to be literally uprooted and unsettled? Yeah. So I, you wow. know, I'd love to hear more indigenous voices on that because, you know, in a place like Northern Labrador, they would have had fisheries household resettlement. Um, you know, the Williams Harbor example I gave is, uh, is Southern Inuit. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, they would have had, uh, you know, day schools or resettlements that they would have moved to. And, you know, now to be contending with climate impacts. So it's, you know, it's this series of resettlement stories. And of course, we're also welcoming people to Canada who are resettled because of war, 
right? So there's there's so many examples that are wow. you know relevant within that. the yeah. Canadian yeah. context and then and then globally as well. That I think in Newfoundland because of the proximity and how much it happened in the last 30, 50 years, there's a sense that it's very unique to Newfoundland and Labrador, but it, it does happen the world over, right? So yeah, absolutely there's a universal theme in that, unfortunately, but also but also fortunately we can we can, you know, find safe harbors and talking about these things together. Mm. So the cod themselves, <laughs> the fish, um, what yeah. do we know about their recovery 30 years right. later? What, what's happening? Well, um, we know that they are still in the critical zone and, you know, federal fisheries department, it's, has three zones. There's healthy, there's cautious, and there's critical zone. And um, cod has uh, been in the critical zone for the better for certainly 30 years. And many uh, sign cod scientists would say for the better part of 50 years. Um, you know, but there is also 500 years of history where cod was doing quite well. Um, what else can we say about it? I mean, there is now a, there are new measures in the Federal Fisheries Act. Great. There's a rebuilding plan for Northern Cod as an example. Uh, it was met with a great deal of criticism. Um, there was a policy options paper I'd mentioned from George Rose, Peter Shelton, Jeff Hutchings, who said that, you know, it was so riddled with flaws that they weren't sure that it would actually help or hinder Cod's recovery. And the reason for that was because they thought that the plan didn't make enough of fishing and overfishing. And, you know, if you talk to fishermen, they're doing very little cod fishing in comparison to what was done pre-moratorium. But, you know, the reality is, is that in a world where cod are critically depleted, we still don't yet know how cod are responding to warming waters. Like the Northwest Atlantic is an interesting ecosystem because in some ways, the cold water of the Labrador current creates this masking effect. And so while there has been that borealization effect that's been happening in other marine ecosystems where you see species moving to the Arctic, um, that hasn't happened as much here, although we are, scientists are starting to see in Arctic seabirds, you know, capelin. Um, so capelin are moving north, for example. So there's, there's starting to be those, those ideas, but the reality is we don't yet know the full effects of climate change. And even when we do, we're not quite sure what to do about it. But long story short, from what I've understood from the precautionary approach, which is sort of a sustainable fisheries management model, which you know says, it, it basically calls for caution um, in harvest decisions and fishing decisions when scientific knowledge is uncertain and you know, it seems to me that there's a great deal of uncertainty. Right. Um, okay. At the same time, you know, cod is fished for the food fishery. Cod is fished in, um, you have an indigenous uh, fishery as well. And I think from what, from what I've read and talking to people, I also don't think a solution is for there to be no fishing at all. Um, because I think then you, you sever and cut off that, that human fish connection, that human nature connection. So, you know, I don't know the right answer, but I, I, I do think that there are measures in place that are intended to help. They don't seem to be having that effect as yet. 
And so what can we do? And I, I think it's having more voices at the table, you know, um, particularly those who have the greatest at stake in the loss that's already happened and the loss that's, that's continuing. And it's not just COD. I mean, Capelin is uh, significantly depleted. It's in the critical zone. It's COD's primary prey. It also happens to be a keystone species. So whales, seabirds, you know, the entire ecosystem is dependent on this particular fish. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's, there's more, I think that, that more conversation to be had and, and our points of light. Um, we know more now than we ever have before. And, uh, but unfortunately, you know, cod remains, it remains critically depleted. That's right. There was a point, interestingly, where it seemed to show some recovery, um, back in 2015, but that just didn't play out. It didn't play out. It gave people a lot of hope. It actually did cause quotas to be increased slightly, even though the scientists (laughs) who did that work had cautioned against it. Um, but that that just hasn't played out. Wow, and and then I remember reading on sort of layered on top of that, like DFO's ships were in such disrepair. There was a couple of yeah. years where the scientists couldn't even get out, um, and yes. so there's a couple of years of data gaps, which are yes. must be like super critical to to be missing data gaps well, of a couple of years on a fish that's in the critical zone <laughs> well this is it in that book in that book i'd mentioned earlier primer of life histories hutchings writes that the most sustainable harvest today tend to be those blessed with the greatest amount of data and then he goes on to say that the gold standard would include you know you'd have information on the numbers of individuals at each age the natural and harvest induced probabilities of surviving from one age to the next and then the numbers of offspring produced and so forth. But then he says, not surprisingly, this gold standard exists for few species or populations. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. just it's just one of these things where it's like, ooh, you know, last year was the first year, and DFO confirmed this for me, um, the first time in 45 years, so since 1977, that it delayed, uh, so research vessel maintenance basically prevented them from doing the annual fall trawl multi-species survey. We included cod, it included Caitlin. And so that means that this year's Northern Cod stock assessment was canceled. You know, I, I just, this is where I came back to, I said earlier, it's hard for people to care about fish, but I think if, do Canadians appreciate and understand that like, this is a federal responsibility? It's, it's in legislation. They are required by law to protect and promote this critically depleted fish Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we're depending we're depending on the federal fisheries act to do that for us because cod's not listed as a species at risk right um so those measures and actions can't can't take effect so we're very much required and you know the fact that that didn't go on and, and not only that it didn't go on that the public wasn't made aware of it until months later you know when i talked to um scientists and those who are in the industry, they said, you know, if this was Iceland and a research vessel broke down, they would get another one. So, you know, but people aren't asking questions about that. Or a naval frigate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Or, you know, like, can't one of these giant companies offer a research vessel, like offer up a vessel? I I just, that to me is staggering. It's staggering that, I mean, it's amazing that we had 45 years of the stock assessment 
being undertaken and that there is such a rich data source. But, you know, it's like as soon as you take your eye off that, which is being measured, how much does it matter? Like we need this data and information. So you're operating blind when you're, you know, fisheries yeah. managers trying to make the decisions. They don't have it. Yeah. And, and yeah, it, th that is such a frustrating little piece of this story as well for a, a nation as rich as Canada and things yeah. that we are spending money on and buying pipelines, uh, you know, yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And it's like our scientists on a critically endangered, you know, species can't get a couple of new state of the art research vessels. I mean, there's seen it in the news. There's Russian oligarchs that are got ships. Yeah. Far superior basketball players that got ships that are far superior, you know, yes. um, to, to what these scientists have. So, uh, that's just so, that's a frustrating piece for sure. It's frustrating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I think some of the brightest scientific minds are within fisheries and oceans, Canada. Um, you know, like just today, Dan, Dan Boyce, who's at the base at Dalhousie and he, he has a role now in fisheries and oceans, Canada, they released a climate risk assessment tool in nature climate change journal. Um, you know, this is going to be so critically important to understanding how marine species, and they examined 25,000 of them globally, will respond to climate change and therefore, you know, how fisheries managers can be better equipped to make decisions based on what we gotcha. know and don't know about these effects. And so, you know, here he is, research scientists at DFO, like brightest minds, truly. And if they just don't have the tools and capability that they need to do the science. So, you know, how do we relay that in a way that, that people appreciate? And, and maybe it's, I think if we, we, we just have to care as much about the fishing and the fishery, uh, we have to care as much, sorry, about the fish as we do about the fishing and the fishery. I mean, there is no fishing and fishery without the fish. Um, so, you know, the degree to which we could tell those stories about being down at the wharf or introducing your, your kid to their first fishing experience or, you know, that I think is what will appeal to the hearts and minds of people. I hope, I hope. Yeah, no, I, I, I believe you're right. I remember one of the principles of storytelling um, and, and you started out uh, when you were talking about your book um, and your publisher wanted, you know, to insert yourself into the story and which I think is, is very critical. It's critical in science as well is one of the key aspects of storytelling to get people to take action is um, when the story has a character that people like and they follow that character yes. on a journey. Um, and I'm seeing a little bit more of that in science where the scientist is yes. becoming, you know, they like to be in the bat, let the data speak for itself. And it's like, no, you need to get in front. And people are like, Hey, that's a good, that's a cool person. Um, you know, so, so yeah, I, I think, you know, keeping the human, the human part of the story at the forefront is, is critical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is, so. and the more stories we can tell, right? Like there's still, oh, absolutely. And that's why I just don't buy the argument of, 
you know, there's, you know, we've written, we've written all the books about this. Mm, no, just like we're going to have hundreds of years of people writing about the pandemic, like humanity is going to need it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look at those books and stories and films on, you know, World War One and World War Two yeah, and absolutely. cowboys and, you know, in the Western period and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's timeless stories. And, um, this is definitely more, you know, more important and more here today. There, there is a, um, a couple sentences from your prologue, um, that actually kind of closing a little bit with this. Uh, and I, mm -hmm. and I think this is a really, this one really, before I even got into the book, um, kind of struck me. So this is what you wrote. I'm also, so the prologue, you're, you're sort of telling the readers, you know, the premise for, you know, for the chapters to come. I'm also sharing the stories of descendants of Newfoundland and Labrador and fishers like me, whose family left the fishery or the fishing outports. Together, we will tell the story of what happened to Newfoundlanders and Labradorians when the cod fishery collapsed one of the greatest collective traumas in the history of our province and one for which no one has ever been truly held to account except perhaps the cod. Yeah. The part of that, and I've got it highlighted here, is this concept of accountability. And it started, I sat back and I just thought, how true is that? you know, the only accountability we have for under the public trust doctrine, you know, is, is to vote, vote people in and vote people out. Other than that, unless an elected official like breaks the, the criminal cold and, uh, code and embezzles some money or, you know, or, or, or does whatever and, you know, gets, gets uh, tried and convicted of that. You know, or, I, you know, I think of things like, you know, the war crimes and, you know, international tribunals and stuff. Here's something that created intergenerational trauma, depleted a, you know, like I said, one of the largest depletions of, of a marine species ever. And there was never like this tribunal, national yeah. investigation to get to the bottom of it, of who did what. Who knew what? Where was malice involved? You know, where was prior knowledge involved? And 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 people ended up in jail over essentially like a crime of humanity and a, a crime against the environment. And I, I just thought, wow, that is that is almost akin to the piece about making things of nature having legal standing, like we talked about, right? Rivers have legal standing; yeah. they're a legal personhood. Is to be able to have a system where people that make these massive failures to be tried by the people of the country over it. Yeah. I mean, I, in, in the piece I did the, for the Canadian geographic and this current issue um, on the cod moratorium, captain Alex Saunders, who's in you fisherman is in his eighties, you know, I mean, like he's, he's literally lived through all of this. Right. Um, he really felt that, that there should be, you know, that this was criminal on the part of mm -hmm, the federal mm -hmm. government. And, you know, for me, I, because I, because I can also see like failings that can happen provincially when I think about aquaculture, 
um, you know, you've got the greatest concentration of open pen fish farming that's happening on the south coast of Newfoundland at the same time as these are closing on the west coast and which is operated federally. I, you know, I don't know if it's as easy as saying, well, if the province is managing or, you know, because the province has also opted to no longer have a dedicated fisheries department and to merge those entities with agriculture. And I, I think, you know, let's look at the, the tools that we have available to us. Like the Federal Fisheries Act is actually a pretty good piece of legislation. Um, and many people that I've talked to, Indigenous and settler, have, have said that. But it's, it's, a lot of it is about how then it is implemented. Um, and so, you know, what are tools that everyday Canadians can equip themselves with to have a voice on this? And, you know, I look at like things like the fishery audit. I think I actually have it right here. Um, you know, and it's, it's an example of something that's created by a non-governmental organization, Oceana Canada in this case. And it does a pretty darn good job of getting a sense of stock statuses, fisheries stock statuses in Canada. And it will tell you that, you know, cod is not alone, um, that there are other examples of, of this where fish are critically depleted. And it also tells us, well, how are we performing on the measures that we've set, Canada has set for itself to replenish these, these wild fish. Where are we and what are we doing? And it looks at things like data collection even, um, you know, along with the types of measures that can be taken to, to replenish and promote science being a really important part of it. So, you know, I, I think there are tools available to us as, as Canadians where we can start to think about, you know, voting is so important. Um, I do think, you know, understanding who your representatives, what they represent, and whether it's evidence-based, whether it's based in sound evidence. Um, you know, increasingly, I think we, we have to do those deeper dives as, as citizens so that our elected officials truly do represent the things that we care about. In Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, a, a top issue remains jobs in rural communities. And further yeah. down the line are going to be issues of conservation. And, you know, part of that is also cultural. But I think that we're at a really pivotal time on the planet where, you know, people are better appreciating that we can't wait to make the changes. We have to start being a part of those solutions. So, you know, I, I think there are tools available to people, but, um, you know, there's always going to be that bell curve of like the early adopters and the, and the laggards. Right, right, but, right, yeah. um, you know, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that uh, people are starting to see themselves as, as part of what the future can look like um, versus sort of this repeating history. No, that's, um, yeah, those, those are, those are great points. Um, and that's why we brought you on the show is, you know, this podcast is trying to be one of those tools. Um, yeah. It's education, it's information, it's a conversation. Uh, it's about Canada, um, Canadian issues, Canadian conservation, Canadian people. There's not a lot out there in the podcast, uh, in, you know, in that genre oh. that's very Canadian specific. It's very American um, centric, mm -hmm. uh, in these conversations. So, you know, we're, we're trying to be a couple of tools, uh, for folks, um, 
<laughs> you know, to, to be a source of information, to, to hear from sure. knowledgeable and passionate people like yourselves. Cause, um, inspiration, uh, I think of getting people involved and, uh, is, is, is the key to the future education and understanding the issues, picking the ones that mean something to you, um, and then having to become an activist. Um, we are, Curtis and I are from, you know, a community of a family of hunters and trappers who generally just wanted to be left alone and do their thing. And we're thrust into this world of literally having to become an activist, not an advocate, but an activist, right? A political activist. It's uncomfortable for people, but you know, that's partly what we're trying to do here. And for, for us in the West, you know, what we've learned here about this God story uh, and the and the collapse and and um, what it meant to you know people on the opposite side of the country of, from us has just been it's been earth shattering for me you know me anyways it's like I'm, it's kind of one of those things it's like how did I, as a Canadian kid that I go through school and I know all this stuff right it's like it's just uh, yeah. You know, it's it's near and dear to people in the East, but not in the West. And so we're hoping to reach yeah. the Western culture through this podcast and say, hey, this is a huge part of Canadian history and inspire people to get involved, like you said, in reading reports and voting and understanding their elected official. I love what you said about, is your elected official, uh, you know, uh, evidence-based person? I mean, like that... Yeah, that's awesome, right? Yeah, I, and and I think like this, it, it's interesting because in my I am a journalist, but I also work half time at McMaster University, and in that role, I work with a Canada research chair who looks at basically best available evidence, and you know we've been really interested in thinking about how can citizens use evidence in in everyday life and. Earlier, when I talked about how fishermen, when I talked to them about climate change, they were like, oh, they felt like it was an elitist issue and maybe they didn't have adequate knowledge to talk about it. But in mm-hmm. fact, they do. And they they had really instrumental knowledge to talk about because they had lived through it and they were able to see trends over the many decades that they had spent on the water. And I think that, you know, one of the things I learned in writing this book is when I first started digging into the fishery science, I mean, and the modeling, the amount of data analytics and modeling that goes on to inform fisheries management. I mean, I was in the corner, like huddled up, trying to make sense of all of this. I'm much more comfortable with it now. And, you know, we live in a time when there's rich access to data and information. Not all of it is created equally, but you know, the more that we can dig in and ask elected officials about their awareness and knowledge. And, you know, I hear people say this all the time about they'd love to see fisheries ministers who come from a fisheries background, who just have more on the ground knowledge and understanding. Um, you know, I think that those sorts of ideas are feasible. Why can't we make that happen? So, you know, I'd like to be able to see the fishermen who are willing to tell you things on the wharf that they may not be willing to tell you on record from a journalist standpoint. I'd love to encourage and see them speak up more as an example. You know, it's it's an uncomfortable role, as you said, to to be thrust from day-to-day life, you know, fishing, and suddenly you're in this activist role. But if not you, then who? Like, who's Mm going to do this? So, 
you know, again, it's why if, if I think if we don't introduce our kids to these topics and make them aware of what's happening in their own backyards, they also will not have a voice on this. So, you know, we don't have to do it all tonight. I don't want this to feel like an insurmountable challenge, but there's, there's, you know, comfort in, in the numbers here. If we can have these conversations and learn our history, prevent it from continuing to happen, because unfortunately it is still happening. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to leave listeners with one sort of carrying on this theme, sort of one last quote from, from your book. Um, and it says life as it once, w once was is gone, but what remains is what inspires. Uh, took me a little while to get my head wrapped around that one. Um, <laughs> sort of, you know, looking at the magnitude of everything that happened to Newfoundland and Labradorians' culture, to the cod themselves, and everything. Um, and at the end of all of that, it's it's like there's this, but what remains is what inspires. Um, yeah. So, it, yeah, uh, and I think it was might have been Jane Goodall that said that, you know, like it was something along the lines of like, you know, there's, I don't think it was her. It was, it, it was, it was another Canadian, I think it was a Canadian writer. I, I just remember this. It, it was something along the lines. It's like, there's all these problems with earth, but it's like, it's the only one, you know, that we have and, and, and yeah. I love it kind of thing. So, yes. um, it, yeah. it, it is a big story, um, you know, to get our heads wrapped around to understand the, the gravity of what happened with the North Atlantic cod stocks. Um, but, the story of what the fish are trying to do and what the people are trying to do inspires. And I hope listeners find that in their lives and their families and their one piece of the country lifestyle conservation issue and find inspiration, even though there are things that are gone. Here, here. Jen, thanks so much for coming <laughs> on the show. Um, wow. Well, what me. a great conversation. So. Likewise. I super I, appreciate it. I am just itching to get out to the East Coast and see some of this stuff and put some of this stuff, nice. you know, to, you know, the picture that you painted just really makes me want to want to go out and see it with with my own eyes. And I think that's an important part of the Canadian um, experience as Definitely. well. People want to travel and go all these places in the world. And I'm like, my God, it's like we're the second largest country in the world. And there's all these things like we've been talking about. And it's like, no, I want to. I want to see those for yeah. myself. So, hey, in Newfoundland, Labrador, mm -hmm. you <laughs> they need you to come visit, okay? So, <laughs> and Curtis will want to fish a cod and catch oh, a absolutely on his fly rod. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that I'd love to see. <laughs> uh, well, tie, oh, tie yourself yeah, you up with some a little cape on there, Curtis, and yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> Thanks so much again. You need the whole uh, experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, take it away, Curtis. Right on. <clears throat> the Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC, who, like I said at the beginning, just signed up for another year of being our title sponsor. So we'll have lots more from them coming at you throughout the next 24 episodes, which is pretty It's hard to believe that we're... We did 24 episodes. Amazing. A year. In a year. Yeah. I know. We had a bonus my... one last year too. So yeah. 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 That's kind of, kind wow. of mind blowing. But anyway, so 
Big thanks to Alpine Toyota for continuing to support us in everything that we do here at the Hunter Conservationist. Thank you, Alpine. Absolutely. Thank you. And one day we will be happy to announce the Toyota Tacoma Limited Edition Newfoundland Atlantic Cod full vehicle <laughs> because they are so plentiful and a way exactly. of life is built around them. Everybody in Newfoundland and Labrador will have a Toyota Cod truck that they've purchased from Cranbrook, British Columbia. <laughs> Oh. All right, everybody, we will see you in the next episode. <laughs>